Welcome back to Season 3 of the Suburb Motivation Podcast. Join me, Brad, each week as my guests and I share incredible and powerful sobriety stories. We are here to show sobriety is possible, one story at a time. Let's go! In this episode of the podcast, we have Jake the Snake Roberts, a professional wrestling icon who shares his journey from growing up in a difficult environment to achieving fame in the wrestling world, only to fall into addiction. Jake candidly recounts his destructive path from enduring a damaging childhood to wrestling success, several injuries, and the slide into alcohol and drug addiction. Despite multiple failed attempts at rehab, Jake reveals how fellow wrestling veteran Diamond Dallas Page helped him turn his life around through DDP yoga, not only by providing a program to regain his physical health, but also altering his mental perspective. Jake's story underscores the power of positive influence, self-care, love, and the human capacity for resilience and recovery. And this is Jake the Snake Roberts' story on the Suburb Motivation Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the podcast. So happy to have you. So grateful for your continued support. As always, if you've been listening to the show since, since it launched, you might have heard Jake the Snake Roberts' story. This is a completely remastered episode. I went back through it since I know a lot more now than I did back then to really make it easier for listening and really highlight the really cool stuff about this episode and about him sharing his story. The comeback is just incredible. And I think this is a really relatable story to a lot of professional athletes. You, you hear it seems all the time about the rise and the fall of making it to the top and then when they're not playing anymore, when they fall out of the limelight, it's a really big struggle for people. And, and Jake touches on this in the episode as well about that rush you get from being part of something so big and so incredible. So you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Before we jump in, though, I want to also say thank you to the handful of people who listen to the podcast that joined us on that last Sober Buddies support meeting. It was incredible. It was great to meet some people and connect with everybody. If you're looking for some support on your journey, I'm hosting the three groups every week inside of the Sober Buddy app. And what I'm going to do for all of you that are fans of the show, because I really want you guys to check it out, is in the show notes, I'm going to drop a link that's going to give you a 30-day free trial to the Sober Buddy app. So it's going to give you 30 days to check it out. There's 10 or more groups each week. We cover everything from skills on how to stay sober, supportive connection meetings, and also different topics each week. And there's just a community in there, 24-7 support. A lot of great feedback, so I hope to see you over there soon. Now let's get to this episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Sober Motivation Podcast. We've got the one and only Jake the Snake Roberts with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Absolutely fantastic. Feel great. Excited to be alive and can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, that's beautiful. You have an incredible story, comeback story, some may call it. And I appreciate you so much for jumping on the podcast with us today. We usually just get started off with what it was like for you growing up. Oh, wow. Irmoil. That'd be the best part to, to describe it. My father shows his bride. My mother was 13 years old when I was born. He was actually dating my grandmother. And she went to sleep one night. 
he went into the next room. So in 13th, she's got a child and winds up having two more children in the next four or five years. And she's not even 18 yet. And that's when my dad decided he had enough and he wanted to hit the road. So he did. She had no way to support us. He wasn't helping at all. So what happened was that she moved in with my grandmother, my dad's mom. She moved in with her and she would try to work. And I was out of school age now and starting to go to school, first grade, second grade, such. And it was pretty hectic. When she had my brother, which was six years after I was born, it was just too much. And she wound up giving him up for adoption. And he was adopted by my aunt, my dad's sister. She was unable to have children, so her and her husband decided they wanted a baby, and they took my brother. So it's me and my sister. This went on just for a few years. My mom wound up remarrying, but they didn't have the means to support all the kids. So they took my sister. And I stayed with my grandmother because it was a solid home that I could uh, go to school was close by, and it just made sense. And I stayed there until I was 12 years old, dealing with my grandfather. My grandfather was a hopeless alcoholic. He had been in a oil field accident when he was younger, and he crushed his legs. So he was crippled up pretty bad. And he would go to farms and do farm work the best that he could. Usually it was building fences, things like that, manual labor, and drag me along with him. And then on the way home, we'd stop at the beer joint for a while. Uh, when I learned how to drive, I was uh, 12 years old. And each time we'd go out, I knew the reason I was going was to drive him home. And uh, it was only about four miles old and his back roads and stuff. And uh, I didn't know how to drive for shit. I really didn't, man. And we went the whole way in first year. Yeah. Jerking him around that truck. But coming home was tough for me at school because when I came home, my grandfather would be passed out in the living room. And less than nice house. I'll just put it that way. And it was pretty rough, man. There's a lot of shame involved. On top of that, I was a bedwetter. My grandmother didn't have a washer and dryer. She had a, a ringer washer that she had to do by hand. And drying clothes would put them out outside of a clothesline. Well, lots of times those sheets never got washed. They were just hung out there with the big yellow stain in the center of them. So I didn't want to bring anybody around. They'd see that. I'd be laughed at. Shame. When my uh, grandmother came home one day when I was 12 and told me she was sick. Well, what do you mean sick? Because I'd never known her to go to the doctor. In those days, the doctors came to your house, and less than a week later, she was dead. Cancer had consumed all of her body. Her insides were just full of cancer. It was a horrible thing to see. She turned bright yellow. It was really wild. And at that time, my father decided to come back and be around his dying mother, and I met my new stepmother, who I realized I'd seen before, 
when I went out and visited my dad a couple of times as I was growing up, he was out wrestling. He was a professional wrestler, much bigger than me. He was seven foot tall, 425 pounds, a huge man. And I realized that it was this girl. When I say girls, because she very young. I mean, he had to be 32, 33, and she was like 17 or 18. He's, he was a pedophile, man. That's bottom line. When they left, they took my sister with them. She was going to school, but it wasn't a necessity, they thought. So she went with them for a while, then she came back and started going back to school. She moved in with my mother. I had to move in with my mother also because nobody could take care of us. So we just went where we could get the care. And my mother had married a, a really good man, hard-working man, and a lovely man. His name was E.C. Crockett, and he was such a sweet man. But by that time, I'd already started building my walls up around me. I'd also had started picking up liquor, beer, drinking. My grandfather, the rule was around our house, if he found his booze, he poured it out. Well, I used to find it, and I found out that I could sell it and make money off of it. So I started selling to neighborhood kids, and that's just the way it went. And the thing with your grandmother, was she your rock sort of in your life, the stability part? Yeah, she was, but she had quite a load put on her. My grandfather, like I said, she's a hopeless alcoholic. She had tried to stop him from drinking. He's the only person I ever met that, was able to take in abuse and drink on top of it. Wow. They didn't trust him to take the pill. He had to go to the doctor's office every morning by taxi. They'd give him the shot. Then he'd get back in the taxi and go four miles to the liquor store. And then by the time he got home, he had already down that pint, which got him well on the way. I guess throwing up didn't bother him a lot. Uh, it's sad because... I look back and I quick to figure out that he was in the hospital for 13 months in the 1940s. And their way of fixing his legs was to continually re-break them to try to light up pieces. They would break them, put them in splints, and then try to let them heal. And if they were healing right, they'd let it go. They'd go to a different part of this leg and work on it. But the whole time, they was hooked up to morphine. So when he came out of that hospital after 13 months, he had a little itch. He had a little itch. In those days, it's not like it is today where you can find morphine on every corner. But he just went to liquor. I wonder what kind of man he really was. But he was a loving grandfather. Is as best as he could be in, a, in the situation that he was in. And dealing with his addiction, he wasn't mean. And he was very kind. He taught me a lot of things, man. I'm really grateful for those things that he taught me. Growing up, it was really tough because, like I said, I built that wall around me because of my bedwetting and stuff like that. Kids can be really brutal, man, when it comes to something like that. And it's not something you want out at school, for sure. And I continued to be a loner, not many friends. 
Usually I had one friend, and I depended on that friend to get everything that I needed. And that's just the way it was growing up for me. At 16, I wanted a car, and the rule was if you want a car, you can have a car as long as you buy it, as long as you insurance, as long as you pay for everything, go ahead. Well, that's what I did. I worked my way through high school and uh, continually had great grades for some reason. I never took a book home in my life. But usually if I heard it, I learned it. And if it was a, a problem thing, I, I was somehow smart enough to figure these problems out without depending on the books. So I, I graduated from high school. When I graduated from high school, I was very angry. Uh, my father had not shown up for anything. Uh, I never went to a ball game when I was playing. I was a pretty good baseball player. Well, you know, little, little football in high school, but I was given, I was a loner, so I wasn't connecting with people. And the football's a team thing. So it's baseball, but for some reason, then you could stick me out on that mound and I could throw fire at you. I guess it was the way I was built. But uh, I went to visit my dad because. I wouldn't let him know that I'd finished high school. I was the first kid in my family to ever finish high school. My parents never went to school. My dad, I think, went to the sixth grade. My mom went to the fifth or sixth grade before she got pregnant. So that was the end of her education as a family. So I wanted him to know that I'd finished high school and I'd planned on going to college because my dream was to become an architect. I really loved buildings and the way they looked and how they were made it just amazed me but i went down to see my father and told him i'd finished high school i was going to college and he just looked at me and said well i hope you don't need anything from me i haven't got it to give you and i was like you haven't given me anything yet anyway i said this to myself but all i was wanting from him was a pat on the back or i'm proud of you son way to go son Never came out of his mouth, man. So I was very upset about that. A few nights later, I went to a show with him and had a few beers. And towards the end of the show, my alcoholic brain started thinking, if you want your father to be proud of you, what you need to do is get up in that ring and beat up one of those wrestlers. Well, I was 18 years old. I was a young kid. I was in shape. I was a big kid but certainly not built and wrestler shape by no means. So I went up and pounded it on the mat and challenged this wrestler who invited me into the ring. And then he spent the next 20 minutes twisting me up, making me peel myself, making me squeal, making me beg, making me scream uncle. Really humiliating. The fans were laughing their asses off. He twisted me up so much that I was unable to walk. I had to crawl back to the locker room area. And when I got there, my father came out to see me on the floor, and he just looked at me, and he shook his head. He said, I'm ashamed of you. You're gutless. You'll never amount to a damn thing. And turned and walked away. I remember that night vividly going back to his house, laying in bed, crying. I remember making a deal with the devil. 
the devil, you helped me become a wrestler because I want to show my dad that I'm better than he is. So I'm going to give up my dream. I'm going to become a wrestler and be the best wrestler ever was. And I made my back with the devil. And the next day I started going for it. I didn't go about it the right way. I, I, my idea of learning how to wrestle was the trial and error method. No training at all, got in the ring anyway, which was really stupid. So, of course, I had some injuries. And that's my early years. So that's how it all started for the wrestling. Yeah. I was curious to when that was going to start. What did that look like for you? The well, it, was, it looked like hell. I mean, I was ignorant, man. I didn't know anything about wrestling. Hell, I still believed it was real. Because my father always played out the storylines at home, which was really cruel. He was a very cruel man when it comes to stuff like that. And if he'd gotten injured in a match, he would come home nursing that injury. Some of them were pretty bad. I remember one time he had to take three months off. It was a storyline. He wasn't hurt at all, but he was wearing a neck brace for three months around the house. Then I found out later that every time I left the house, he'd take it off. Oh. Some pretty cruel shit, man. Yeah. So did you end up going to college or did you do no. the wrestling? I threw it all away and got into wrestling and into the early years because trying to become a professional wrestler and not a one day job takes years. And I did it the hard way. Like I said, the trial and error method. I wasn't not near ready to get in the ring to wrestle. So they made me a referee. And that's how I learned. I learned by refereeing the matches and I got quite a bit of knowledge from refereeing. I refereed for about a year. And then I went back to trying to wrestle again, again, never going down there and, and, and getting him to a ring and working at it, practicing maneuvers, learning how to hit the rope properly. Finally had a guy teach me how to hit the ropes properly, which was a brutal experience. I remember not being able to lift my arm or I would hit the rope of that side. Underneath my arm turned green and blue and orange. It was pretty damn brutal, man. But that's learning the hard way. If you learn the hard way, you don't forget it. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's the truth. If you could go back, you would change the way that you approach things, or do you feel like the way you absolutely, approach, yeah, you would change it yeah, up? Absolutely, I would. I'm taking the time, number one, get my ass in shape for it, and number two, go and and actually get into a ring and practice moves and learn how to make the moves right without hurting myself. Because I wound up hurting myself two or three times, which well, I bent my wrist over to my forearm and bent all the way over. That's not good. <laughs> and, uh, the surgery there took 18 months to recover from that. While I was recovering, I worked on my father-in-law's dairy farm. And I learned quite a bit there and had a great experience there. Wow. 18 months. Yeah. That puts you out of the game for a bit. Yeah. When did, yeah. When did the addiction start for you? Well, I, I think I've always been an addict. Predestined, if you will. 
because I was always searching for something to make me feel better about myself. And it seems like the only time I could feel really good about myself is after I'd had a few drinks. Then I started feeling my own, would start standing up and start being heard. It gave me the courage to talk, if you will. We all know that's bullshit, but that's just the way it was. It gave me the courage to uh, speak out and question things. Because when you got a few drinks in you, you don't give a shit. You just throw it out there, whatever it happens. And that was the way I learned a lot. Yeah. And that was at a very young age, especially in the wrestling business. Every night you drank seven days a week. Wrestling back then, you, you wrestled seven days a week. You had no days off. You might have one or two days off in six months. So every night after your match, what do you do? You drink on the way home. And when you're drinking on the way home, you're talking about your match, talking about what you could do better, uh, talking about trying new things. Other guys would give you suggestions. The old timers would give you some advice if you're riding with one of them. And I always try to put myself around people that give teach. Yeah, to learn. Now that's super important. When did things get out of control in a sense for you? Were they like from the beginning or did it take a while for you to really lose a grip on things? Yeah, it took a long time for me to lose a grip on things, man. Well, I say that, but it depends on how strong a grip was, I guess. Because yeah. I maintained for years, but that's when I was drinking beer and just a little pot and was still able to perform every night and do my job better than anybody else could do it. Once I got into the business and got going, it took me about three years to get going. But once I took off and got going, I became a main eventer overnight. And that was like 1978. By, by 1978, I was in a main event every night, no matter where I went. If I went into a place that I had never been before, two or three times in that ring, brother, I was pushed up to the main event. For some reason, I had some people wanted to see. Yeah. Where they just liked me going out there and killing myself, one of them too. But you know, it was pretty quick. The, the alcohol and drugs started to take over after I had a neck injury. We did a thing where this guy, the honky tonk man, was going to hit me across my back with a guitar. Well, he missed my back and wound up hitting me in the head. And it wrenched my neck over and completely obliterated two discs. The discs were literally sprayed in little bitty pieces onto my spinal cord. The surgeon said he had never seen that before. They wanted to explode it with such force. But they did. And uh, foolishly, I'd just gotten to the WWF at the time. I'd been up there a year or so. And the money had went from making 700 to to $1,000 a week to making anywhere from $5,000 a week 
to $25,000. Just overnight, it changed whenever I went to the WWF. So all of a sudden, I'm able to give my family a, a gigantic new home, a new car. My wife could go do anything she wanted to do. She had jewelry. She had furs. She had artwork in the house that was very expensive. And things were coming in, but I wasn't saving any money. I was just, as soon as he came in, I'd go out and buy something else. And I didn't prepare myself for an injury. And also, in my business, they, they want you to be job scared. They want you to be scared to take a day off. And they want you to, you know, I broke, I wrestled with a broken wrist. The neck injury, I wound up wrestling for two years with that. But that's when the addiction took over because I was medicating myself, morphine and cocaine, and I lost control. And after two years of trying to perform like that, I finally went and had the surgery. They told me I'd never wrestle again to forget about it. But I knew better than that. I knew me. They never asked me what I was going to do. And I was going to go back. No, no doubt in my mind, I was going back. And I took six months on. I made a trip to Amsterdam to get a lot of performance drugs, a lot of steroids, some growth hormone, quite a few anabolic injectable steroids that I bought, hand used, whether it be testosterone, parabolin, well, there was two or three that I used. But... I snuck that all back into the country. I should have went to prison for that, but I snuck it back in because I had to have it. You know, things, you know, I had an angel watching over me or something, man, because they should have snatched my ass up. But good. And the amount of it I had was enough for 10 guys instead of one. If taking one helps, then taking five ought to really help. Yeah, now we're talking. If taking one cc is going to do it, imagine what if I took 12 cc's a week. That's just the mentality. Then you get addicted to steroids. Just another damn addiction. And uh, yeah, whenever I finally came back, I'd gained close to 40 pounds. And my strength was unbelievable. And for the first time in my life, I, I was told that I was too big to wrestle. <laughs> This big man told me he didn't want to jake the snake Roberts looking like the way I looked. I was much too big, too strong. I'm like, what the fuck? I thought the idea was to, the bigger, the better. I mean, <laughs> the champions Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And then when I got hurt, I weighed 235 pounds. But when I went back, I weighed 280. So when I went back, he looked at me and he said, okay. Take your ass out of here. You're not coming back to work looking like that. You know what? You'll lose 20 pounds. 20 pounds of muscle. Which really pissed me off because I was in the best shape of my life, man. I was, I mean, I looked fucking good, but I really cared. I was jacked. I mean, I had muscles where I'd never had muscles before. And so when he told me to go home for two months, and lose all that, I basically did exactly what he said. I lost it all. But of course, I used uh, a lot of cocaine with that time off. And I just sit by the pool and drink beer. 
That was my idea of how to lose it. And I was very frustrated and angry because I couldn't get back to doing what I wanted to do, what I love, which was performing. I think the most dangerous drug that I've ever been around is, oh gosh, is the rush you get from the people, that adrenaline rush. That, that is so powerful. I mean, I had a compound fracture in my right arm where the bone came out. And I remember looking down at it going, whoa, that's cool, man. You know, and my opponent looked at me and they literally threw up on my boots. When he seen it, he just yeah. he puked on my boots and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Come on, let's wrestle. He's like, go away, Jizzle. get away from me, get away, get away. He was running from because the bone was sticking out. But I didn't feel it. Didn't feel a damn thing. That's that adrenaline rush. That's dangerous, very dangerous. But I spent a lot of time, a lot of years, and a lot of injuries. And well, when I lost control with the neck injury, it was 1989, 91, those years right there is whenever I lost control. And of course, they started drug testing us, and boy, I'd study all night for a test, and then I'd fail it. I couldn't understand that. I thought that was wrong, but I went to a rehab. That didn't help at all. It was a waste of time and money. And I just kept rocking and rolling, man. Finally, I, I really crashed in 1997, 98, been caught again. See, they kept me in a good position on the car because I was a superstar, but they'd never give me the title or anything like that because they couldn't trust that I'd be there to perform. They were afraid that I'd fucking pass and had to be sitting down. So they just never, they never put the load on my shoulders, so to speak which was very frustrating for me. <laughs> I was a bigger stoker than, than most of those that were being used in a better position than me. But because of my addiction, they just couldn't trust that I'd be there. That, that I would couldn't plug another test and be told to go home. So I created my own monster, man. And uh, after Tiny Seven, I just started spiraling down. And I spiraled for a long time. I didn't finally crash till 2010, 2009. And it got really bad, man. It got really bad. I wouldn't go anywhere unless it was two or three o'clock in the morning. I didn't want people to see me. I looked so bad. I bloomed up over the over 300 pounds, uh, couldn't get work, didn't care if I did work, didn't give a shit. And I lived on next to nothing. And every time money did come my way, I'd spend it on cocaine. I'd just buy what I could and then uh, buy some alcohol to come down. And, and then found 20 bucks towards foods. Then <laughs> 500 on cocaine and alcohol with $40 on food. That's going to last you, what, a day? Yeah. Right. I didn't care, man. I just got to the point because I realized that my family was gone because I lost my family in 96 because of my addiction. And I'm grateful to God that uh, he gave me women that were strong and uh, independent. 
and they, they raised my children really well. Cause I've got eight kids and I can't say that I raised any of them because I was seldom there. When I left in 97, I didn't see any of them for 10 years, 12 years. And by the time I wanted to see them, they didn't want to see me, which was part of the addiction. It was the way they used to get angry and what I tried to avoid thinking about. Addiction is such a tricky beast, Liv. He brings these memories to your head and tells you how sorry you are. This, that, and the other, where you wind up hating yourself. You just want to escape all the pain. And you wind up using it so you can escape. Well, that's what I did. That's what I used it for. I didn't want to think about what I'd blown, what I'd done, how bad I'd been. I didn't want to think about that shit. But yet, I wasn't strong enough to try to change anything. I tried to quit hundreds of times. Hundreds of times, I literally prayed and swore and prayed and begged and finally went to another rehab. That didn't work. So... Just could not get it together. You just felt like this might be a part of your story forever. Did you ever feel yeah. that way? Yeah, I was wanting to die. Yeah. I was trying to die. I tried to commit suicide a couple of times by thinking a lot of value. Well, basically, all I did was wound up throwing up on myself and my sleep. And I didn't die. I remember that doing that and then getting angry. And myself for being such a failure, you can't even fucking die around. But uh, years before, I befriended a guy, and uh, he was trying to get this company of his going, the DDPY Yoga. Yeah, yoga, man, believe it or not. And uh, he came to me and seen me, and he wanted to help me get out of the situation I was in. He wanted me to get straight. So he made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And basically, because I was dodging my ex-wife, man, because every time I got near her, I went to prison, I went to jail. Because I had paid by child support. It's the way it was, man. But um, anyway, he made me a deal. He said, if you'll move in with me in Atlanta, I'll pay all your bills. I'll get you caught up on your child support. I'll get you straight. The deal is you can't use, can't drink, can't do drugs. And you got to do my rules. Then, boy, did I jump at that. (laughs) Are you kidding me? You mean I'm going to live in a nice house instead of where I'm at? Because I was living in a dump. It was horrible, man. And, And to escape all that and to escape responsibility, this was the perfect way. For me, now, knowing my addiction, when I went to Atlanta, I figured I'd last about a week before I had to use. So I I figured it was going to blow up fairly quick, but hell, I was going to try. And well, I went to Atlanta and I made it a week. I made it a couple of weeks and then I had to do something. So I escaped. And went down the street and got a pint of vodka 
drink it, then come back to the house and got busted. And expecting to be kicked out of the house, I uh, went to Dallas and said, yeah, man, I, I did it. I'm sorry. I did the best that I could, man, but I fucked up. He's like, yeah, you did. And he gave me a big hug and said, I love you. Let's go back to work again tomorrow. Like, hey, what? You're not kicking me out? No, I'm not giving up either. And I didn't even realize what he was doing to me. He was changing the way I approached each day. He was changing the way that I look at myself. I used to wear some pretty graphic t-shirts that said things like loser. What was the one? But I used to really piss him off when I wore it. Anyway, I can't remember. I get brain parts now at that age. That's what I call him anyway. And he changed the way I talk. And he wouldn't let me put myself down because I was real bad about that. I fuck, I can't do it. Was, that, that moves too hard. I'm a fucking loser. I can't do it. Don't call yourself a fucking loser. Just try harder. And he slowly started changing the way I thought about myself. And then it almost got to the point that I was getting healthy enough to, that I could do a lot of the moves. So a funny thing happened on the way to the war, basically. Because all of a sudden, man, I'm doing these moves and I'm starting to feel good about myself because now I've lost 40 pounds and it was something that it was positive in my life. It was a good thing. And getting myself in shape enough to where I could get in there and do the workouts gave me immense amount of pride. And I started thinking, maybe I can be completely clean. Then after about seven months, I went out and used cocaine. Man, it was a bad one. I was gone for a couple of days. When I came back, I knew that was it. He sat me down and said, okay, there's a new rule. You don't go anywhere unless somebody's with you. I was wanting it so bad at that time that I said, well... I want to do something. And I, I took out my driver's license and I cut it up. And I said, I don't want to be able to drive. And if I'm able to drive, chances are I'll get behind the wheel of the car and I'll go get dope or I'll go get booze. So I don't want to drive anywhere. And he was good with it. Again, he didn't kick me out. Each time I screwed up, there was consequences. I had to do 90 meetings in 90 days. It was tough, man. But I was starting to work now because people had heard that I was getting, getting sober. But again, to be careful, if I went somewhere, I had to take somebody with me. And of course, I had to pay them for going. So all of a sudden, I'm doing a gig that's going to pay me 2500 bucks. But it's going to cost me 800 to pay this guy that's riding with me. Well, and it made for some good times. Some funny stuff happened from the way to the war. But 
when you share a room with somebody, you find out just how nasty they are, I guess. You know, I, I, I was raised in the locker room, man, so I was real bad about not wearing clothes and just parading around the, the hotel room and not giving a shit. But I kept moving forward, and uh, I, I credit DDP Yoga for getting my life back on track. Because back before I started doing it, first thing I thought of in the morning was, how am I going to score today? How am I going to get what I need? Well, at Dallas's house, the first thing you do in the morning is you get your ass up and you do DDPY yoga for an hour, sometimes longer. By doing the yoga, I thought magic happened and it released those endorphins by releasing those endorphins, it made me feel good about myself, made me proud, and it gave me hope. That was one thing that had been missing in my life for so long, hope, and now I had it. So I just kept doing that routine. Routines are good as long as it's a good routine. A routine where you get up and start buying the dough and wondering where you're going to get your booze is a bad routine. It's your choice which one you're going to do. But again, doing that DDPY yoga, the first thing when I got up, man, and I get that endorphin release, and then I was ready to go out and try to kick the world's ass. I was ready to go again, man. I felt young again. I felt proud again. I felt like I was on fire inside. And that's the way I went about things, man. And I think I fell, when I say fell, I used, I think six times in a little over two Two and a quarter years, and they were filming me the whole time I was there. So yeah. they, they documented everything. Of course, we came out with the documentary, the life, the resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts. That's what it was. Yeah, which you can still catch on Amazon or whatever. Yeah, I'm just yeah. have a few questions. I'm wondering a few, two questions here. I'll ask one first, yeah. the next one after. What were your initial thoughts though when it was suggested to you that yoga? Might be helpful. I'm telling you, that's completely horseshit. Yeah. I didn't believe that for a second, and I'm still amazed by it. But if you don't think yoga can kick your ass, get in there and try. Yeah, you haven't done it yet. Oh, my God. You'll love it, man. Because the great thing about yoga is you can make it as hard as you want, or you can make it as easy as you want. But there's something about doing that routine where your mind and your body starts to float together and it's all good. That endorphin release, that's what you're looking for. Yeah, so true. Yeah, I, I love that. And I've heard incredible things about the program. Oh, it's so unbelievable. From people, the the transformation. So, oh, she's definitely doing that. Yeah. Where did the name the, the Jake the Snake come from? I'm curious. I was a big football fan, and I used to be a guy that played for the Oakland Raiders named Kenny Stabler. They called him the Snake. Riding down the road after a wrestling match, listening to the football game on the radio, and smoking the joint and drinking beer, and it's like, man, the Snake, that's badass, man. That's so bad, man. That'd be so cool if there was a wrestler with a snake and he threw it at people. Yeah, man, that'd be funnier and shit. Jerry, I keep smoking with, yeah, man. Wow, Jake, the snake. Oh, oh my God. 
That's perfect. Check the snake. Oh my God. Now, Roberts, I got from the TV program Dallas, because the heel there was JR. So I stole Jake and then took the R for Roberts. Jake the snake, Roberts. Ta da. <laughs> That's incredible. So, wh when do you celebrate your sober birthday? Each moment. Yeah. Fair enough. Each moment. I can't tell you an exact date, uh, but now I've got over 10 years and it's friggin' awesome. I'm very comfortable now in my sobriety. I hope that's not dangerous for some people. It might be, maybe it's dangerous for me too, but you know, I do drive by myself now and I've not had any problems and I pray that I don't, but. I can tell you this, if I'm walking through the airport and there's a bar, used to, I would magnetically go there automatically. But now when I get close there, I take a deep breath because the smell of alcohol makes me sick to my stomach. Now, what a gift is that? Yeah. I mean, literally the smell of alcohol makes me want to throw up. So that's a positive thing. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like you have a lot of hope now. So oh, God, yeah. Going back to the way things used to be, you've distanced yourself so far from that. I think it's incredible. Oh, yeah, man. I, I've been able to do a lot of things. I've, I didn't do my taxes for like 15 years yet. And now I'm getting caught up on my taxes. I got caught up with my ex-wife. Um, my ex-wife and I reconnected and after 23 years of being separated, we're now back together and I've even got a little ring on my left hand that she gave me and I've given her a very nice ring to wear. And I guess you might say that she's my fiance right now. We're just waiting for the right day to get married. Wow. And that's just amazing when to, to go from where I was in the ditch, begging to die with no hope at all, no way to support myself, nothing to doing what I'm doing now. And yes, in February, there's going to be a special on television about my life. That's going to be really awesome. Wow. I've just got so much going on. I'm doing comedy again. Basically, my comedy insists of me telling road stories, things that used to happen back in the day in the locker rooms, which is some pretty crazy stuff. Very entertaining. But yeah, doing that and do a lot of signings. I'm trying to get something set up where I'm going into rehabs. I work for AEW now, the wrestling company. And occasionally I'm on TV with another guy named Lance Archer, a buddy of mine, where we became buddies. And I manage him. And also for AEW, I'm their guy basically whenever they come to a town, there's an outreach program of some sort there where they need somebody to go to the hospital to see kids or whatever. Or we just did one where we handed out food for five hours. You know, 
Wow. Five, five hours of handing a car frozen ass turkey. And it was cold as hell outside, man. But there was like 2,500 people lined up to get this food. And we stayed there the whole day, the whole morning and handed it out. And just trying to do things for the people, man. And to give somebody some hope. To let you know that you don't have to go that way. That there's help out there if you'll just seek it. But then I encourage people that are doing well to, hey, if you want to do something cool, man, help somebody. That's cool. It is cool to help people, man. I'm not saying be stupid and hand them your wallet or anything, but there are ways to help people, man. And the first thing comes with acceptance and love. Yeah, that's so true. It's so important on our journeys of recovery and giving back is that showing other people oh, God, yeah. that, that there is hope because we lived hopeless for too long. I'm, I have a question for you here. Yeah. Without your sobriety, would any of this stuff ever be possible? No, I'd be dead by now. No doubt in my mind, I'd be dead. Back in the day, if it was a choice of me going to the doctor's office and taking care of a health issue or getting a high, which one am I going to do? Get high. Well, get high. It's like blow off a health issue. You know what that's like. But just none of these things would have happened. And I give back. I've got several people that I talk to, if not weekly, several times a week, whatever it's needed. Try to help them through a rough spot. School on how to get clean. I like that. Yeah. And well, you need to help, right? Any anything. Yeah, help anything to help, man. What you're looking for is the end result, right? And people say, Oh, well, you must be really weak if you can't do it. <laughs> I'm not yeah. weak. I'm an addict. There's a difference. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's an illness, and that's just it. Yeah. It's a bad it's like what you said earlier too. It's about putting one foot in front of the other and doing the stuff you were doing. The yeah, you did the meetings, and I liked when you shared about the other story about being at the house. Is that it? Seems like throughout that story, when you the first time you went out and you got caught, you might not have done anything on your end or you didn't share. But the second time you went out, you took responsibility and right to cut up your driver's license and do some more things. Right. That's the change. That was the change that started happening. And I I know that uh, although I went out and used two or three times after that, I remember how emotional I was each time. It it completely devastated me because I was really trying to stay clean. And I was using everything that I could and I still fair. But I think that was a good thing because it just showed me that I was completely powerless. Yeah. Completely powers over alcohol and the drunk. Yeah. So I learned. And I think also too, what I hear from it too, is you had more hope, but you also had people in your life that you probably didn't want to let down. And when we get in. That's it, man. Yeah. The hopeless part of things and we're on our own and we're stuck up in the daily cycle. It's easier for us to go further down in the hole. Yeah. We're just destroying ourselves. We feel like. Yeah, man. And that was the thing. I didn't want. I didn't want to look Dallas in the eye and tell him I lost again. 
come on, man. This guy's doing everything in the world to keep me straight. He's feeding me some of the best I ever ate in my life. He's got people cooking for me and, and saved me. I'm doing cleansings and doing all sorts of stuff. He went a whole nine yards with me. Never asked for a nickel. Yeah. Of course, now after I got sober, I started paying him back. Yeah. And I'm glad to say today, I don't owe him anything and accept my love. And he's got that. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. I got one question here to wrap things up. If, if that's right. okay with you. Yeah, I'm great. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as a guy that, that fought and lost, but won again. Because yeah. I think my story's got so many parts to it, but the loss is something that's a big part of my life, man. And uh, I want to be remembered for the humane things that I'm doing now. Not so much as a great wrestler. That was such a small part of my life. Yeah. Incredible. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This thank is you, been, bro. This has been incredible. Good. Good. I hope it helps somebody. Well, there it is, guys. An incredible episode. What a story. To come back... Through listening to that story, I can just envision in my my head, and I was early on with podcasting, so I wasn't maybe as quick as I am now after 130-something episodes, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Jake's an incredible storyteller, very honest about how dark things got for him, and I just really appreciated him being willing to come on here and share his story and what he's doing now for people to get somewhat of a career back and you know, make a living for himself and his family and just to be part of something and giving back and helping others. And I just can't express how important that is. And this whole journey is once we get our feet under ourselves is to start giving back and helping people in our communities in one way or another. It doesn't always have to be people trying to get sober. People want to be sober, but just being good and giving back and feeling good about volunteer opportunities and reaching your hand out to help the next person with what they're going through and Maybe some of the pain and some of the experience that we've been through can help people out in their darkest times. So thank you all, as always, for the support. If you have not left a review yet on Apple or Spotify, jump over there and do that. Make sure you're following the show on Apple and Spotify as well. And let's keep going.